Welcome to The Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK Magazine and JCK Online. Today, JCK's Rob Bates and Victoria Gamelski will talk about the latest news and a weird story of the week. Then, they'll interview Joe Thompson, editor at Hodinkee. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Jewelry District, JCK's podcast. My name is Rob Bates. I'm the news director of JCK and JCK Online. And from the West Coast, we have Victoria Gamelski, editor in chief of JCK and JCK Online. I feel like we have a lot to talk about, which is refreshing for a change because August typically doesn't seem to generate a lot of news. But mm-hmm. I think you've been covering a lot lately. Start out with your week. Right. So there was the first annual Jewelers of America convention this weekend. And there was also the WJA and the AGS. Circle of Distinction Award. So it was one of those busy trade weeks that you have. The JA convention was very interesting. I should say right off the bat that my wife ran the education. So obviously um, I was very favorably disposed, but I think it was a really nice event. They're already talking about having one next year. There was a lot of interesting stuff that I heard, which I'm, I'll just go over very quickly. There was a woman from the State Department, and I didn't actually get to hear her talk, Mm -hmm. but people said it was kind of a tough talk. I mean, because a couple months ago, there was that big meeting with the industry and the State Department, and people felt that they got a very stern message that people need to have greater traceability and need to know exactly where all the elements of their jewelry come from. And apparently, you know, this message was very much reinforced and reiterated at this talk. She said, you know, there's executive orders we can use. She talked, I guess somebody was a little shocked because she talked about criminal uh, prosecutions that are possible if people don't follow all the kind of AML uh, money laundering guidelines. Wow. So I think people were a little kind of taken aback and I'm kind of wish I saw the talk. I actually led a panel on traceability and it was about blockchain. And, you know, there's all these schemes to increase the traceability of minerals in the industry and of diamonds in particular. First of all, I still don't understand blockchain. I've had it explained (laughs) like a million times to me. One thing that's very clear is that, you know, this is not going to be easy that I think we all agree that traceability is something that the industry needs and it's a noble goal and there's a a million reasons from consumer confidence reasons to these kind of legal reasons that I spoke about to humanitarian reasons, obviously, but it's not easy. And I even, I went to, there's this new lab-grown diamond council being formed and one of the things they were discussing was, can they be able to trace their product? And it's funny, they they sounded just like people in the mine diamond industry. They're like, well, we can't trace this. You know, it's in parcels and it's very difficult, right? So it's something that clearly the outside world is calling for, but it's going to be a challenge. feels like the industry's like this sort of Sisyphean task, if I pronounce right. that correctly. You know, like you just push this boulder up a little bit ways up the hill or you get to the top and then it rolls back down and it feels like we've been doing this for you know years maybe bordering on decades i mean conflict diamonds that that issue is 20 years old so this has been an issue for literally two decades 
it begs the question, will it ever happen? Maybe once technology is so entrenched that blockchain is a household word and people talk about it as if it's nothing, people understand it, people do it, it's, it's some technology that's employed for every aspect of our lives, maybe then it'll be easier to implement. But I still have to wonder, will this ancient trade ever be able to fully account for its products? You know, even in the best of circumstances is, let's say even if it, you know, you could flick a switch and make everything traceable tomorrow, you have everything from before that's, you mm -hmm. know, still very much in the trade, that's still very much out there, there'd be absolutely no way you could account for it. Correct. No way. I mean, cashmere sapphires that were mined in 1880. Right, right. going to tell you the provenance of those stones, you know? So it's, it's definitely a challenge, but I think it's doable. I mean, people who know this stuff tell me that, you know, the people, they do it with fish, they do it with lumber, they do it with paper. So it's possible, but it's just not easy. And it requires a kind of whole new mindset on how you kind of catalog these things and, and track and trace these things. I suppose the more the growing chorus is encouraging, of course. And the, right. I think this kind of talk happened at the edges of the business 10, 15, 20 years ago, and now it's happening in the center. So I guess the point, fact that yeah. it's a mainstream concern, you know, bodes well, bodes well for more people trying to make this happen, more people throwing resources, obviously consumers getting wind of this or, or, or pushing from the demand side of the business. So it is encouraging, but I, I do have to wonder if we reconvene this conversation in 10 years, where will we be? Right. I don't think anyone can say, although blockchain and kind of the, I suppose, the momentum behind it, it feels like one way that people can make it happen, at least on the new production part of it. You know, the, the, the secondary market is a something that may we may have to live with as sort of an untamed wild beast. But new production is coming up and new stones and new materials and new new metals, probably there will be a way to corral that side of the industry and trace it and give it interesting blockchain certificates and, and everybody will have some peace of mind. You know, I guess that's what we're all after. Blockchain, you know, was so big for a while and you don't hear that much about it. I see your point, at least yeah. in the jewelry side. A couple of watch companies have implemented it. Vacheron, right. Constantine just uh, had some news around putting a blockchain in initiative together. I think for security purposes and, and counterfeiting purposes, but I would need to double check the story on that. So I think the watch industry is obviously funded by a lot of luxury groups. There's a, a great deal of brands with a ton of money and a lot of resources. And, and obviously the diamond side has also embraced it, or at least there are a lot of initiatives that you've covered for JCK in the recent past. So on the diamond side and on the um, watch side, I think we might see some more news of blockchain you know, I'm glad to hear the conversation continues to roll on. It would be utterly devastating or and, and very demoralizing for people to stop talking about it. Right. So. And I think it's not something that people see as optional anymore. I think people see this as necessary, given the pressure from the banks, the pressure from the government, the pressure from consumers, the pressure from the media. People see this as something that just has to be done. Uh, and, and and actually, in kind of a similar vein, there was also a panel on detection of lab-grown diamonds. And okay. what's interesting is that we all know the industry can detect 
lab-grown diamonds with the proper equipment. But the proper equipment is not necessarily readily available. And there's so many of these things out there, there really is the potential for not just for consumers getting ripped off, but for jewelers who buy these things from the public, for them getting ripped off. So, you know, we're kind of, I think eventually we'll, we'll have a very easy way to detect these things. But a lot of people who went to that session felt a little unsettled because we probably aren't where we need to be. And we need hmm. to find a way to detect these things in a very easy way. And we, we just aren't there yet. Of the people there, were they retailers? I mean, are they unsettled about yeah, were they I think I think just a lot of people don't necessarily have the proper equipment. So if you buy something from the public, you have the ability to test it. And just, you know, something comes in and how do you test it? Right. And do you have the ability to test it? I mean, you're you're definitely relying to a large extent on what your supplier uh, represents to you. Not only that, even if everything going forward is able to be tested, who knows how much stuff, how much lab grown stuff is unwittingly in jewelers showcases. Huh. Clearly, this has been happening. So I think everybody, especially in the industry, has this whole idea that you know, 60 Minutes is going to have a big scorching expose. You know, I think there are potentials for lawsuits and, and all sorts of uh, embarrassing repercussions from this. So I think people have been taking it seriously, but perhaps we have to say, okay, what do we do? Where do we go from here? So if you were talking to a retail jeweler or if you were a retail jeweler yourself, would you say that there's no jeweler should be buying stones from the public without having a lab-grown testing or detection machine on-site, in-store. I mean, do you think we've gotten to that stage now where... I think it's uh, certainly a smart precaution. And, you know, one of the reasons that I've heard that people lowball people when they bring in their diamonds is because they haven't been tested. So they're kind of assuming that there's the chance that it could be treated or it could be lab-grown but since they don't necessarily have the um, equipment to test it, they're going to lowball it just in case. Right. So if you knew for sure it was natural or untreated or whatever you particularly wanted it to be, you could perhaps give a better offer because you don't have the chance of being stuck with something that you don't necessarily want or that you might have overpaid for. Was there any other big topic of conversation or anything that people are buzzing about at the JA conference? There was a, a J.P. Morgan economist who spoke. And one of, one of the interesting things, and I, it's, it's something I probably should have realized, but I've, it's like I've never realized this before, is that he said, you know, the economy can be doing well, but that doesn't mean that every sector of the economy is doing well. And there, there can be pockets that are growing very fast, and there are pockets that be going very slow. And he said, you know, retail is obviously a troubled pocket of the economy. That to me, I thought was, was very interesting. There was a woman who gave a quote. She was from Euromonitor. I thought this was kind of a cool quote. This is a, a Jeff Bezos quote. Your brand is what other people say about you when you're not in the room. <laughs> That's great. That's a cool quote, right? There was also an interesting panel with a woman from Chanel. She was talking about these new stores that they're building, this new kind of retail concept. And it's interesting that even in the luxury 
business. There's a lot of talk about how you break down the barriers, how you have somebody stand next to the case instead of in front of the case or in back of the case. Do you let people dress in their regular clothes, right? Because you go to a luxury store, you expect somebody to kind of be fancy in a, in a suit. But, you know, today's shoppers, especially the younger shoppers, don't necessarily want that experience or enjoy that experience or may perhaps feel intimidated by that experience. So how do you kind of break that down? So it was very interesting to hear that even some of the top luxury brands are starting to say, well, maybe we can have people in jeans. Maybe we don't have to have them stand behind the case. And I think this is probably the evolution of luxury that it's a little bit more approachable than it's been in the past. That's an interesting point, and especially for a brand like Chanel to kind of consider it, which has always seemed to me to be really up there, sort of the creme de la creme of Parisian houses, you know, maisons. Yeah, they have the yeah. fancy French name, too. They Maison. sure do. Maison. Maison. Yeah, I, and they do make some really nice jewelry, actually, some really high-end, beautiful, you know, ultra-diamond set jewelry, but clearly that's not their their big focus. And they also make some great watches that have really earned some acclaim in an industry that's populated by a lot of, you know, very hoary, old, antiquated firms. But yeah, so Chanel's kind of the paragon, I think, of luxury. So to hear that, them consider what that means in practice in a store setting, I think is a really interesting harbinger, I guess, of what other retailers might start thinking about. So you've been working on the big JCK 150th anniversary issue? Is it done yet? It's not done yet. We gave ourselves plenty of time, thankfully, but we are in the thick of it. And I have very much been in, immersed in it. It's taking the place of our September-October issues. So it's going to be out on stands, so to speak, in late September. It goes to the printer the end of August, so the end of this month. I've spent a ton of time in our archives earlier this year and took hundreds of photos. So much of what I've been doing these days is really just diving into those photos and pulling quotes from old issues and really celebrating the fact that much of what we've said since 1869 continues to be said in one form or another. Right. We have you know, nothing every, new to every, say. Nothing <laughs> new under the sun. Uh, maybe that's just the upshot yeah. of, of history. It all comes back around. Um, but it's kind of reassuring and kind of lovely and delightful to see that People in 1870 and 1919 and 1950, these retailers grappled with the same things they're grappling with today, whether that's the you know incursion of lab-grown or synthetic or imitation stones, or whether it's how to sell, you know, the mystique of, of various colored stones, Golconda diamonds. I mean, we see these things come up, whether it's, you know, how to sell more watches. Why aren't we selling watches? What's coming out of Switzerland? What's happening with the Japanese courts timepieces? I mean, again, these conversations we've had over and over again. And right. it's really interesting, actually. And it's it's kind of delightful. I, I keep reading quotes that were not for the syntax, the kind of old-timey syntax that writers of yore used to use. You wouldn't know if it was from today or from 19... 12. That actually was something that, that struck me because, you know, you stay in this industry for a long time. You always hear, oh, it was so much better then. It was so much better then. And maybe it was better. But it's not like when it was supposedly better, people didn't complain or people didn't have like tremendous issues because, of course, they did. 
Right. And so maybe there's just a certain camaraderie you can feel with your predecessors. Right. We all dealt with this. We all survived. I mean, you've covered this topic, Rob. And in fact, in 1967, we published or the Jewelers Circular Keystone, pardon me, Jewelers Circular Keystone, because I think the the was dropped sometime in the mid 50s. It ran an article called can the independent jeweler survive? Right. I mean, that, that is a conversation we've had over and over. And I think that probably happened for decades, even before this article. So I do think there's a sense of camaraderie and relief that you're not alone, that we are not alone, that this industry has grappled with these things before. It'll gra- continue grappling with them. Yeah, it's been great. I've really, really enjoyed it. It's been a special time and I'm thrilled that I'm around for it because, you know, 150 years is a long time to find a yourself part of a milestone like this is really exciting. And then to have people like our next podcast guest who has joined the magazine in 1977 and was a part of some of the golden years of the magazine. I think some of the biggest issues that JCK had were in the eighties. In any case, I suppose I'll tee him up since I already have Joe Thompson, currently editor at large at Podinke. He join this industry via JCK or via Jewelers Circular Keystone, as it was called back in the 70s. So we're thrilled to have him. And it's just a perfect time since we're putting, like I said, putting the finishing touches on our big anniversary issue. So those of you who um, you know are waiting for your next issue of JCK to come out, it's going to look different. It's going to read different. But it's going to be a kind of one of those, we hope, evergreen pieces that you want to sit on your shelf. Like a collector's item. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and the, the cover shoot, we're doing a cover shoot today, actually, come to think of it. It's happening in New York, and I don't want to ruin the surprise, but it is going to be a spectacular piece. We have a fantastic award-winning photographer putting it together. We've got a graphic artist working on it. We've got pieces coming in from all the decades that JCK has been around, so all the way from the Victorian era through modern day, and will be represented on the cover, and it's it's going to be spectacular. So um, let's let's get excited. I, I, can't, I can't wait to see it. So we have the weird story of the week. So this is something from a, a publication called ladbible.com. And I was actually, when I read this story, it's such a weird story that I double-checked it and I actually had, uh, got some information from the Daily Mirror. So this is a legit story, even though you may not believe it. It comes with a video and the video says, warning, graphic content, do not watch while eating your dinner. So I'm warning everybody. Mm. You're not eating, are you? No. Okay, so warning, there's graphic content here. Don't eat your dinner. Okay, so doctors removed a whopping 1.6 kilograms of jewelry from a woman's (gasps) stomach. And it says, doctors have removed coins and jewelry worth an incredible 53,000 pounds (gasps) from a woman's stomach. The 22-year-old patient had suffered abdominal pain and been sick after every meal for a week before she was admitted to the hospital. This is nuts. Yeah. Well, (laughs) I assume it's not a great thing for you to do. Baffled doctors in West Bengal, India, discovered the young woman had a hoard of items inside her after a scan, including 69 chains, 80 earrings, 46 <laughs> coins, eight lockets, 11 noise rings, what? five anklets, and one watch dial. It's amazing, huh? I mean, 
I guess I, she didn't like the watch style. She was not uh, she's big, more into the earrings and the chains. I mean, maybe they just slipped down easier, I suppose. I, I mean, what did, did she just chug a bunch of water and, you know, it calls to mind like a sword swallower. Like, how does one get yeah. that in there? Wow. Medics, she, she's alive. She's alive and well. Uh, I take as it far now. as I know, medics said most of the items were made of copper and brass. According to her mother, gold items and ornaments had recently started to vanish from the family home. <laughs> <laughs> the mum, this is a British newspaper, so the, the mum said she had no idea her daughter had been swallowing the items. I, well, one would hope, right? This is disturbing. Yeah. Disturbing. She also said the coins consumed were likely to have come from her brother's store. <laughs> her family said, we noticed that the ornaments were disappearing, but whenever we questioned her, she started crying and revealed nothing. I mean, you have to wonder what was her plan. You know, she must have had a plan. She wasn't, uh, or, or was she just swallowing them thinking not to profit? I mean, I, don't think, I guess I don't, my initial, uh, who knows? I mean, I think she was stealing them to make some money and just hiding them in her own belly. But <laughs> maybe she was just being spiteful and just trying to cause a ruckus. Anyhow, I, I says, applaud you for always finding something extremely odd. Yeah, it says she is now receiving psychiatric help. <laughs> I think I need psychiatric help after that. Uh, Amen. If you're a fan of podcasts, you know that listener reviews is what helps make them possible. Help spread the word. Please rate, review, and subscribe to The Jewelry District on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. And now back to the show. So right now we have the honor and uh, privilege of having Mr. Joe Thompson, a JCK alumnus, covered the watch industry for 42 years. I did. And you were the, I believe in 2016, you won the Gem Award Lifetime Achievement. Congratulations. Thank you. And he owes it all to JCK, I guess. <laughs> hi, Joe, by the way. Pretty much. Victoria, hello. Great to be with you. And hi, so everybody out there. You. you know, Houdinki's kind of like a fan site, right? And you do this very in-depth articles. But are you finding that they're interested in that? Well, yeah, my bias all along had been that when you are a fan of anything, let's say you're a fan of the Yankees, let's say you follow Judge, you not only know what he did in the game last night, you know everything about him. You know what his batting average is, you know what his salary is, you know who he's dating, what car he's driving, and you know all of the, you know, what's going on in the clubhouse, et cetera, et cetera, if you really are a fan. And it's, I feel it's that way with the industry. So that for me, being B2B for most of my life, most of my career was writing for professionals in the trade. But when the shift came in the 1990s of the revival of the mechanical watch, I still felt that people who really were interested wanted to know more about the industry and the background of the industry and what goes on. Of course, they want to know the product. And uh, at Hodinkee, they get you know, remarkable coverage of the product. But if you're into this product, you also want to know, you know, what happens when all of a sudden in China, the largest uh, region in, in the world, the Far East, uh, that product, that luxury product becomes identified with corruption. <laughs> 
How does that affect things? Um, when the Swiss franc becomes extremely overvalued it, and all these kinds of things and Basel world, if Basel world, you know, is not, is going to make things that are not directly related to product, but are related to the industry, I think are of interest. And that's what we're finding. So they're keeping me at least for the time. Right. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I mean, I love having your perspective because it's just one you don't see on a site like Hodinki. It's you get great critical reviews or not so critical, great coverage of product news that's coming out, but you don't get it in this context that you have, this 40 years of expertise watching this business evolve from the crisis when you entered to the renaissance in mechanical watchmaking we've been enjoying for 20 years. I think it's a great addition to your career and a really wonderful addition to Hodinki's readership. Thank you, Victoria. Thank you. Now, I, yeah. I would assume also that since a lot of you know, to be a watch collector, you have to have a little bit of money, right? So they're the kind of people who would be interested in business, right? The, like a lot of the watch collectors are probably people who work at like Wall Street and things like that. So they, they, they are interested in company. Well, it's a, it's a broad audience. I mean, I think, I think that's also part of it. I mean, yeah, you, 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 and, and the beauty of it is, I mean, you know, if you're not interested in that, you just ignore it, you know, click on something else. It's a monster that has to be fed, you know, every day. I don't need to tell you to about that. And so there's plenty up there. But for those who, who want to have, and with me, it's often long form. And I mean, look, when Ben approached me, I mean, we, I, I, was, I was really quite skeptical. I went right into sort of journalism mode about, okay, what's wrong with this picture, you know, et cetera. But he said, no, you know, we, we, he, he would like to have sort of longer form reporting and very, very graciously said, you know, just some, some memoir pieces about the past. And so we have a few of those up there. Speaking of the past, I mean, I'd love to actually go back and ask you about your early days at JCK. And in fact, I think you've just come from looking at our archives and digging around for a few of the earlier articles you wrote. So I'd love to hear about that. But my first question, and it's something that came up in a chat we had a couple of weeks ago, is you said that when you first came to interview at JCK under the great editor, George Holmes, that you were given a freelance assignment, right? That you had to write an actual story. And I just wondered if you even remember what that was. I, I certainly do. People say, how did you get into this industry, et cetera? And I, I literally just answered an ad. Uh, I was working on a small newspaper in Cape May County, New Jersey, and uh, needed to sort of improve my, my situation. So I applied for this job, and it just turned out there were, there were three candidates. And yeah, what George did, and George was, George was this tremendous figure in, in my career. It was a real turning point when I, when I came to JCK. So I had, a, you know, I had about a year and a few months working on this small newspaper, primarily reporting, you know, you know, but you're, you're just doing, you're working every beat that there is, you know, you're covering the police beat, you know, you're, you're just covering everything that's going on. But now you're coming to a monthly magazine, you got to do feature writing. All three of us were assigned uh, an article to do. So what I did was just do a profile of a jeweler in Cape May County, New Jersey. I went over and I interviewed the gentleman. I don't believe I still have this piece. He did, they did actually sort of, you know, after I would have to rewrite it when I joined them, they wrote it as a sort of a retailer profile, but that's essentially what I did. And wow. then, uh, then submitted the piece and lucky me, I got the job. And George, if I'm not mistaken, he his background was the Wall Street Journal. And I think he kind of brought that ethos to JCK. He said there's no reason why JCK shouldn't be the same kind of publication. Absolutely. I mean, he had very, very, very high standards, uh, which was something I and all of us there at the time appreciated. And he had this quiet charisma. He could be inspirational. 
encouraging, uh, intimidating. <laughs> I, I remember uh, the intimidating. All at the same time. I'd give you one example of what it was like and, and why I love him. I mean, I, I'm going to literally see him in two weeks. I'm, we're still, I'm still in touch with him and he and Debbie Holmes, his yeah. wife, who was the managing editor. When I arrive, he tells me I'm going to cover watches. Okay. And I'm, you know, I can remember driving home that day thinking, oh my God, you know, what did you just do? What can you possibly write about watches once a month? Okay, more on that later. But I quickly discovered this is really, really interesting, especially in uh, 1977. So Seiko, which was the dominant brand in the world then, certainly in the United States, the U.S. was the largest market, hired Bob Pliskin, who was a legendary figure even before he went to Seiko in the industry to be the new CEO of Seiko in the USA. He had been at Longine Wittenauer, where I had known him. And so I call him up and right away I want to have the first interview. I get the first interview and I ask him about Seiko's gray market, which was a touchy subject at the time. And most Seiko executives didn't want to talk about it. But Pliskin, as was his manner, dove right in. So I come back, I write the story. George edits the story. Off we go to the next month. A week or so later, I get a call from Mr. Pliskin. Listen, sweetheart. Now he called, <laughs> called me and everybody, sweetheart. He said, listen, sweetheart, I need a favor. Understand, this was his first interview. I said, I just came from a meeting and some of the lawyers here are a little nervous about the fact that uh, I uh, talked to you about the gray market. Sure, it's not going to be a problem, but would you mind sending me a copy of the article? And I go, well, all right, Bob, let me check. So I go to George and I say, hmm, this has come up. And George just goes, out of the question. Absolutely not. Tell him no. Okay. I get back. I call him. Absolutely not. Out of the question. No. He then starts to lean on me. Listen, sweetheart, I'm going to crack here. We got to cooperate on this. You got to help me. And so bottom line is I cave and I send him the article. Wow. Big Mistake. True confessions. Here. <laughs> oh God! Right. This is so. I I then um, and I go. Ah, you know, I'll handle this. I'll handle this. Plisson's a good guy. We'll take care of this. You know, just uh, you know, we'll, we'll work this out. I don't want to lose him as a source. I don't want to get him in any trouble. It's a harmless article. There you go. So I send it to him. A couple of days later, phone call comes back. It's Pliskin and the lawyer, Mr. Thompson. I can still remember his name. His name was George Newmayer. And this was Seiko's outside counsel. And they want to make 39 changes to the text <gasps> of the article. And it goes on. And I'm going, oh, my God, we're having this. And I, I don't want George to know. So now I'm, I'm, in, I'm, in, a ter I'm in an awful position. I, there was a buddy in the stall. The stall, we called them stalls, in the cubicle next door. Bill Tonelli, he went on to become a, a, a big editor at Esquire. And we were pals. And, and he hears me just, this is going on for like half an hour, 40 minutes going over all this, you know. And he, he pops his head up and he looks at me. He used to call me Joe Boy. Joe Boy, <laughs> you Okay. <laughs> And I'm just shaking my head, no. And in my mind, I am not only not okay, I am a dead man. <laughs> so oh, Neumayer says, Mr. Thompson, I can't stress on you the importance of this. If you publish this article and what you have Mr. Mr. Pliskin saying, Mr. Pliskin will go to jail. We will run. And I, I say, you know, gentlemen, I hate to tell you this, but I believe this, this article is the printer. And <laughs> he said, we will rent a plane. We will fly you to wherever the printer is. And then you can make these changes. And I said, all right, listen, gentlemen, I'm going to have to get back to you. I hang up the phone, and I literally, I've never done this before. I leave the building, and I walk <laughs> around the building in Radnor, Pennsylvania, and just curse my own stupidity and naivete for doing this 
and killing this career that I, I was really starting to, you know, this little germ of a career that I really wanted to develop. So I walked back into the building, I walk into Georgia, go up to George. I said, I have a problem. I need to talk to you. Okay, we go in, close the doors. What's the matter? I tell him. He said, all right, get me the lawyer's number. So I go to my desk. I come back with the lawyer's number. I'm sitting there. He calls the lawyer. Mr. Newmayer, this is George Holmes and the editor-in-chief of JCK. I understand you've got a request. They talk while I'm sitting there. And I hear him say, Mr. Newmayer, I know this reporter. If this reporter said Mr. Pliskin said it, then Mr. Pliskin said it. He said, we have a policy that you should not have seen this. He said, but I can tell you, we will not be making any changes oh. to this to this article. Wow. <laughs> and he said, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you appreciate my position and you have a nice day. And then he hung up. So I'm now sitting, looking at him. I'm, I'm a dead man. I mean, I, you can see my stress. All of it is brought on by myself. And he looks at me, he's just nonchalant. And he says, now you understand why I told you not to send the article. It was like that. Wow. And, and I'm, I'm pretty much waiting to get fired. And he said, anything else? <laughs> <laughs> no. I mean, you know, you got anything else? <laughs> no. Okay. And I left. And lesson learned. So he, he really was. I mean, he... he <laughs> and I assume this guy didn't go to jail. Of course that he didn't was, go uh... to jail. To, to, you know, the postscript to this article is this, the article came out in, the, in those days, it was the RJA show. Uh, at the Hilton, I go up there, and the article came out in the in the July issue. And when I get there, I go directly to the JCK booth, and they're in a kind of a stir there. And I'm going, "Oh my!" He said, "Listen, you know, Bob Pliskin's been over here three times. He wants yeah. to see you." And I thought, you know, I'm I'm sure he does. <laughs> so I go over, I walk into the Seiko booth, and I see him, and he looks at me, points to me. And he, and, he, and he said, come here, get over here, come over, come here, sweetheart. And he looks at me and he goes, listen, sweetheart. He said, I owe you an apology. I let myself get run by a lawyer. He says, huh? I'll never do that again. You were right. And then he, and then he, made, he paid us a compliment, just a sort of a, a slang come. He says, you guys got balls. And, he, <laughs> and, we, and he, you know, we stood up to, <laughs> to, to, to his LBJ wow. treatment and Neumeyer's threats. <laughs> And that was the end of the story. I mean, I think I'm just so amazed at how many titans of this industry you've met, interviewed, who know you on a first name basis. People that I think I'd heard of Tomkey, Ernst Tomkey, is that right? Yes. Um, but really, he was before my time. And so I didn't really know too much about him. He was right. sort of the, the, the guy who predated Nicholas Hayek. But it, that's what's amazing is there, I don't know if, of anyone, perhaps there's a Swiss journalist who has that kind of connections or, or has been connected to these these executives like you have but I, I was I, extremely lucky Victoria I in in a lot of ways I was lucky and I didn't realize this until much later but being an American meant a couple of things first it meant I was neutral because we were not a producing power for watches that's a B on that was we were also the, at that time the largest watch market in the world and that was a great advantage. So when the guy from the States came, and if you were, as I say, from 81 on, I was the watch guy. 
because then and then you're getting reference. I mean, you, well, what that meant was I mean, the, the, the wind industry was rather undeveloped. I mean, there was nobody for the, the, I was a pack rat about any data I could get. So occasionally when the mainstream press, whoever it was, the word said, oh, you ought to call Joe Thompson. You ought to call Joe Thompson. So all this thing fed on itself. So now I'm getting quoted in the New York Times, you know, I mean, Sports Illustrated, wow. I mean, a whole bunch of magazines because there was no other source. And there's a different style. This American style that we took, we kind of take for granted, which is that it's 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 pretty informal. We're very very deferential to the executives. You're quite direct. We use first names. We it appears it can can appear to be rude. It, it certainly is not. And I, I found that a lot of the executives really responded well to that. And 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 I never never ever walked in and said had an interview with these guys and put a tape recorder down there and then just transcribed it. And, and no, you, you do that for, as a fact check, but that you always control your own story. But, 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 but to this day, many, many of the Swiss executives, that's what they'll do. And it all starts with, and you can read it, you know, and it kind of makes you, what? What's going Oh, thank you so much for taking, no, no, whatever, you know, there's no, yeah. no need to thank you for taking time. My own experience, like a guy like Tomke and Hayek, they responded well to this kind of coverage. And they were happy to have this kind of coverage in the U.S. And now Hayek, in the beginning, he saw me as I was very pro-Japanese, you know, because I had gone to Japan in 1981 for the first time. You know, he really doesn't come public. Uh, Hayek doesn't actually come behind from behind the scenes until about 85. Up until then, it's Tomki. That American way was to say, okay, you know, who do I need to talk to to get information? And I always had the, I had a certain confidence. I don't know where it came from. I think it came from the fact that as a journalist, you're not expected to know the answers. What you need to know is the questions. And if you know your brief and you have the questions, you know, and, 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 and they respond, I think they responded very well to that. And I, and I would laugh and tell Hayek, why? Well, I mean, well, okay. You know, the minute, you know, You'll get good coverage too when when good things happen. I mean, I, I'm just here to chronicle what happens. And how, how do you think Switzerland turned itself around? Maybe we do it this way. One of the reasons I've stayed for so long is that the industry is tremendously interesting because it does change and changes dramatically. It doesn't change quickly, but it changes dramatically, if I can put it that way. In my 42 years, I have covered really four revolutions. And the easiest way for me to explain, for example, your question, Rob, is to say, well, look, you have to understand that in the 1970s, we had the Quartz Watch Revolution. And what these revolutions do is they create new markets, new products, new audiences, and you know, new winners, new losers. After that, in the 1980s, we had the Fashion Watch Revolution, which was the beginning, an important part of the Swiss comeback, with the Swatch Watch. But it also was fossil and guess and a whole different category, an explosive category of watches. Then that was, so that's the 80s. In the 90s, you have the mechanical sort of counter-revolution, the mechanical re renaissance, which only actually can come because the mechanical is doomed. And you knew that because everybody in the industry told you that. The Japanese, the Americans who were, uh, believed that they were coming back on the strength of the digital watch with all the electronics companies, and the Swiss. So this miraculous recovery comes because it ends up having a value because people think it's going to become a collector's item. And then it kind of all, it all stems from that. So there's, there are two tracks. They come back, the Swiss come back because they, first of all, they were able to master 
courts, which was the absolute urgency. And there was uh, serious questions about whether they could do that, but they did. They were late, but they did it. And the Swatch watch was the symbol of it and the turning point of it. And that actually stopped the Japanese in their tracks. It's, a, it's a, in my view, and it's a different discussion. And, and there were other courts heroes, Jerry Grinberg, at the Movado Group, Alain Dominique Perrin at Cartier, Severin Wonderman at Gucci. No, the, 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 they did come back. They came back in courts, but then the mechanical is is the thing in the 90s that really, really brings them back because no, they have no competition. There, they dominate. So the fourth revolution is is now the smartwatch revolution. Do, do you think that's going to be a revolution? or I, I think it is a revolution, absolutely. And I, we, we see the effects of it. It was a long time coming, really. I mean, we're talking now 45 million smartwatches were sold in uh, 2018. That's mm. up from 29 million in 2017. It's a 55% jump. Um, these are estimates Apple doesn't give. Apple has half the market. They are the really, really dominant player. But just an example of what's going on, one example is Seiko. Seiko is an interesting company to follow in terms of all these revolutions, these four revolutions that I've been lucky enough to cover, because Seiko is de-emphasizing the under $1,000 market, the under 800 market. Its traditional strength was 100 to say 500, to five, and then up to 800 in time. But they're now emphasizing Grand Seiko. That is a luxury mechanical watch made in Japan. It's a magnificent timepiece. Collectors love it. And they are de-emphasizing in the United States in particular, the core Seiko product, which is to me an amazing thing, but that's what they're doing in order to save the business. Those statistics you cited are pretty compelling and very dramatic. One of the things that's been so interesting to note as we've looked through our archives is that JCK began as the American Horological Journal in 1869 and then was sort of acquired by the Jewelers Circular and became the Jewelers Circular and Horological Review. And from the very beginning, watchmaking, watch repair, watch sales, obviously, that whole business was the pillar that this magazine stood on. And we see that, you know, continue into the 20th century, but sort of from the 80s, 90s, and certainly over the last 20 years, you know, watch advertising it really doesn't exist in the trade. It's, it's a direct consumer communication. And we've seen the follow-up on that, of course, is brands going direct to consumer, brands selling from their e-commerce sites, brands selling strictly to the boutiques, dropping their traditional wholesale network or trimming it back you know, severely. Do you see that continuing or do you think that the watch brands may you know, come to realize that they really needed their retailers and that they sort of did a disservice to themselves by cutting those networks and going at it alone? I mean, how do you see that consumer piece evolving. Yeah, and it, it's it's still going on. This is also an, another revolution, really. I, I do think it will end up being brick and click, but I still think there, 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 are, there are certainly more casualties to come. But you, you, you're absolutely right. I mean, Audemars Piguet's uh, decision to go direct to consumer, you know, through boutiques and others, Richard Mill. But it, it is a mix. I mean, the, 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 the industry is all over the place right now because you still have Rolex and Patek Philippe absolutely committed to the retail jeweler and that network. But I mean, it's if you don't have one of those two brands, it becomes harder and harder. There's no doubt about that. Richemont, for example, is more and more 
going direct. You see the, see the data. I mean, their you know sales through their own sort of much much better than their their wholesale na- network. Everybody's trimming their wholesale networks. So yeah, that 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 still is in flux. The winners will be the jewelers that are able to improve and become probably uh, have. Uh, you know, through perhaps the situations like Trovery and access to e-commerce as well as to their own in-store operations. Thank you, Joe. We loved having you. Thanks for coming. Great pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. Our editor and engineer is Levi Sharp. If you like what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts. We hope you join us next time on The Jewelry District.